Welcome to a live on the way podcast, a Christmas special of the podcast here at St. John's Anglican Cathedral. Uh, my name is Dom Fay. Sue Grimmett is here in the Dalnell room again with me. Hey, Sue. Hello. Nice to be here. We fought through the Christmas shopping traffic, I yes, think, to get yeah. here tonight. It was a bit heavy getting here on a Friday night. Uh, Peter Katz as well. And Peter, are you the one to thank for the Christmas tree that is to my right in this no, room? Anne is the one to uh, thank for that. And I was going to draw a picture for the, the listener uh, of there's Dom Fay sitting next to this wonderful little LED lit Christmas tree and his skin is aglow. (laughs) Skin is aglow is a sounds like something I should see a doctor about to be honest. It's actually a Christian movement. There we go lovely beautiful and we do have a crowd here as well maybe a round of applause from the crowd just so you can hear this. Thank you very much. It is lovely to be surrounded by people here to join us for a Christmas conversation as well. And it's a very exciting conversation. This is one that uh, we threw around a little while ago, um, the idea of celebrating incarnation for Christmas. It is a story, um, a season of incarnation, um, the, the story of the birth of Jesus. And uh, the, the question of whether humans are inherently good or inherently bad doesn't to many sound like an inherently religious question, weirdly. It's often in the realm of philosophy more than theology. And yet, to me, it does seem central to the question of when we talk about faith. So to begin with, um, there's a number of terms we might use in this conversation. Things like original blessing compared to original sin um, is probably a key one. People who are listening to this either in the room or later, um, I might go to you first, Peter. They might not know these terms. Can you just give us an introduction to the idea of original sin um, to begin with, where it comes from and, and what the view actually is? Yeah, what a delightful start. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> Original sin, that's the idea that we are inherently sinful. And so it's predicated on the idea of the second Genesis narrative that Adam sinned and the rest of us, because he was the archetypal human being, the rest of us are in a state of sin from the time we are conceived. And in the early church, that was taken to a real extreme by a group called the Manichees, who had the idea that uh, there's this wonderful light that's in the heavens, and every time a baby is born, a bit of that light gets trapped in this dreadful world and is, is separated from God. So the Manichees advocated that we all stop having sex so there are no more babies so that we don't trap any more light so in other words human beings are such a waste of space we should go away yeah right and you can you can see how that theology has um, filtered through through the years and and it's no longer the possession of just one denomination you can walk into an old liturgical church and you will hear things about um, inherently sinful and wrong and shameful in the eyes of God. Then you'll go to a Pentecostal church and you'll see them with their arms raised singing effectively, and I am paraphrasing, I'm a piece of crap, God. Um, This is really something that has filtered through all of Christianity. Why do you think, Sue, it's caught on so much, this idea that we're really at our core pretty rotten creatures? Yeah, well, you've got a couple of other people who be held accountable for this, I think. Augustine, of course, um, believed that sin was a sexually transmitted disease and and that was, it was how it was passed on, really. And then you've got someone like Calvin who also thought that some were predestined to, for grace and some were predestined to just remain in their sin and to be to be separated eternally from God you know and so if you if you actually combine both of those ideas you've got something very toxic 
Um, but I think in terms of why, I, I think there's an awful lot that we recognise in ourselves that we don't like. Um, and so when we get a doctrine that says you are inherently wrong, um, often we're pretty quick to embrace that because we can see things in ourselves that we don't like and things uh, in our life choices that we go, well, how did I mess that up? Um, but I don't think we've been helped generally by, by doctrines, but also by culture. I, I don't think you have to be a Christian to um, believe in original sin or something along those lines. I think there mm. is a popular belief in society that we're all pretty crap, as you say, that we're, that we're pretty rotten at heart. And you hear it in, you know, in, when people will roll their eyes and your little cynical statements, they are, but what else do you expect? People are always like that. You hear those kind of comments at parties. I'm only you, human. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You don't even have to be at, in, in church to be believing this stuff. There's a, a man called Rudger Breckman who is, a, I think, a sociologist, author, a number of other things, a researcher. We're going to quote his book, Humankind, A Hopeful History. You'll reference it a couple of times uh, in this conversation. Um, Breckman's book came out uh, two, three, maybe four years ago now and effectively looked from a research point of view um, that when crisis hits, do humans become monsters or do we become angels? What side sort of comes out? And uh, Bregman has this really helpful analogy that he looks at in the book that uh, a professor used once. And I think it's a helpful thing in setting up the conversation. The question was, um, he, this professor would pose this to his class. He would say, there is a plane that has just crash landed. It's in the middle of the ocean and it's starting to sink. In planet A, everybody calmly helps each other off. They say to people who maybe have disabilities or people who are elderly, you go first. Um, people are, are generally generous and making sure everybody else gets off calmly and patiently. In planet B, it is mayhem. People are clawing at each other, fighting, getting off first, not worrying about everyone else on the plane. And this professor would ask the students in the class then, do you think we live on planet A or planet B? And the professor said every year it was at least 95% of the class think we live on planet B, the animalistic sort of everyone for themselves sort of um, planet. And yet all the research as Bregman unpacks in his book is actually in times of crisis, humans almost uniformly go the other way. It actually seems to bring out the best. And here in Brisbane, we see this when the floods have happened and we see the mud army emerge, that actually the crisis brings out our inherent goodness, not our inherent animalistic nature. So... That is the conversation we're going to be having, a more hopeful view of, of incarnation and what that actually means. But as a bit of a clause to begin with, Sue, um, you wanted to be quite clear that we're not peddling um, what the phrase people might have heard, hopium, for Christmas. This isn't a conversation where we're going to be blind to the problems in the world and the, the evils and pains that can exist and, you know, all link arms at the end and sing Kumbaya. This isn't about that. This is, um, this is something more rigorous than that, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it's, we're not just being sentimental. And I think Christmas is one of those times of year when we're in danger of sort of waxing sentimental about lots of things. But, you know, none of us you know, kind of buy that stuff deep down. Um, so I think we are talking about something far more robust, but it's, it's with an open-eyed look at, at humankind. And an open-eyed look, and we, we know ourselves well enough. It's not like we're saying, hey, everyone's, everyone's great, really. It's all perfect. We're all going to react really well all the time. We know that's not true. And, and the sort of any sentimental gush that we might go over at Christmas time that, that tries to, to you know, paint over is, is going to be short-lived, isn't it? But I think there is still something robust in Christmas, not just the sentimental fluffy stuff, but something robust that points to the goodness that is in us and amongst us. So, yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, well, Peter, I, I suppose this conversation um, really does link to something we talk about almost every episode on the podcast, which is the, the narrative that we live by, the stories we tell ourselves. I know you said a number of times that, that humans are narrative creatures more than anything else. And you can see how this follows through. If your narrative of the world is that everyone's out to get me, I can't trust anybody, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, that will be the world that you then inhabit that sort of cynicism, that distrust. You'll look for examples to confirm your theory and ignore the ones that disprove it. Um, why do you think so much of the world, because we've made the point already, this isn't just a Christian issue. Why do you think so much of the world is living with this narrative that humans are, are largely monsters, maybe with a few exceptions of people who, you know, the people I love seem to be pretty good, but the rest of them, you can't trust any of them. Yeah, well, there's a few things going on, I think. One, one is that if we uh, pedal the line we're deficient, that is a really good place for the advertisers to step in. And so capitalism depends on us feeling deficient because you need to be able to buy products that actually make you a better person or fulfil you or fix up whatever's wrong with you. So there's, in our capitalistic culture, there's that driver. The other thing is that if you tell people that they're horrible and that you can fix them, then there's a really beautiful way of controlling people there. And a few years ago, I actually said to a pastor of another church in another place, I said one of the downsides of the way we go about our business is that we, we peddle a bad news story in, uh, we, in order to, to give people a good news story. And he said, oh yeah, that's really important. You've actually got to really convince people. When they walk into your church, you have to convince them how bad they are, so then you can give them the antidote to their badness. So it's, it's, it's all big marketing strategy. But you're so right about the idea of the narrative. I think the, of, of all the issues we've done, this one has at its, at its core the whole idea that humans live into a narrative. We are narrative creatures, and that is shown by things like the placebo effect. If you put every, every drug trial they do, there is, there is actually a placebo effect. So there are people who are being given the sugar pill mm. who have taken on the idea that this drug is going to fix people and they actually live into the story of this, I'm taking the drug that'll make me better, and they get better. Yeah. There's also the nocebo effect, which is the exact opposite, and that is if, the, if you're told you're horrible, you'll live into that story. And so that's why things like voodoo works. There's some really extensive work done on people who buy into the voodoo narrative will then get sick when someone says, tells them that there's a witch doctor who's cast a spell over them. And it's because they've bought into the story world. Yeah. And so when we're talking about original goodness or original sin, we've actually got a divide, a fork in the road in terms of our narrative history. You can either embrace one, which basically says, you start on a high, I'm essentially good, I do some really crap stuff, but I'm going to go back to my essential state, mm. or you start off way down in the doldrum somewhere, I'm essentially a piece of rubbish. And so any good you do is sort of a fleeting moment of escape from an essential badness or evilness. Yeah. And you, can, you don't have to do too many thought experiments before you realise what sort of profound effect that has on people. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Peter, as you tell that story. I remember something you said to me a while ago 
um, linked to this about funerals. You said that at a funeral, if you start with the idea that it's a celebration of a life, then you can go down from there and, and really have the, the somber moments. But if you start with it just completely as a, a gloomy thing, it's almost impossible to lift to the celebration of a life. Why do you think it is that, that you know, you can't, if you start at the base level, you can't go up, but if you start at the top, you, you can make the room for what lies underneath? Why do you think it's so important where you start? Well, I think it's to do with the effect of positiveness. If, if you start with the idea that uh, this person's life was rich and wonderful and we're going to celebrate it, that's a positive outlook. If you start with the idea that, and you know, there are Christian funerals that start with the idea, I'm not even sure this person was a Christian, therefore we're not sure of their destiny and so we're going to be really worried for the whole of the time. And we have relatives from time to time who are worried about whether, whether the funeral is going to be magic enough to sort of fix up what's, what's wrong with them. So I think there's, I think essentially positives, positives are easier places to, to restore than, than trying to climb out of, out of the doldrums. And we know that's true for our own lives. If, you've, if you wake up feeling miserable in the day, trying to get to some high point is, 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 is a hard ask. Going, up, going uphill, I guess it is, going uphill is a difficult thing, whereas coming downhill is a breeze, really. Yeah. So, so if people are listening to this at the moment and going, okay, well, this all sounds lovely, but uh, look what's happened in the last year in Ukraine and look at what these 17 people who the course of my life have done to me intentionally or whatever it is, we all have our lists, I suppose, of the pain that we've experienced and look at what humanity as a whole is doing to the planet without seeming to care all that much. Um, and thinking, you know, this is just a bit of nice set dressing so we don't have to face the fact that we are inherently sinful in need of salvation. If, if someone was listening with that perspective right now, what would your response to them be? First of all, I would say that we remember stories, our brains attach onto the negatives. I've been told that's an evolutionary thing so that we can try to protect ourselves from ever going near that or having that happen again. So I think in our heads we tend to preference the bad stories mm -hmm. um, and the media knows that. Um, so there's that feature, that just sort of natural slant. We tag it emotionally in our heads and it hangs around. Um, but I also think, yeah, we, we've seen the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You see people, um, you, you say you mentioned individual people in your life. I would say that's a big example of emotionally tagging because I bet you won't have emotionally tagged quite as strongly, you know, the little kid who shared his lunch with you in grade three yeah. as against the, you know, the, the grade seven kid that tried to push you down the stairs. You know, there's, mm. there's things that we will preference. So, you know, we've got those stories. So this is part of saying this is not wash it, glossing over, but it is to recognise what stories are we highlighting and bringing to the fore. And you can, if um, particularly in, you know, in extreme situations of conflict, warfare, um, where, there's really, where there's real evil, you will always find um, incredibly strong stories of bravery, of courage, of self-sacrifice and self-giving to others. You know, but they may not, because the, the, the story of, you know, we look at the numbers of, of how many dead and what, you know, and yet there are these stories that really should be shining brighter than anything because of the degree of courage that was required. Um, and they're always there. Uh, and I, I guess it's helping it to, to notice um, and also, in some cases, real goodness is sometimes quiet. You know, goodness that is going on all the time 
tends not to always draw attention to itself and sometimes mm. you have to open your eyes to see it. Um, whereas uh, I think uh, the real evil tends to be broadcast f very loudly. You, you mentioned negativity bias there. For those who maybe haven't come across it, I think the, uh, the science suggests that um, we need to sit with a positive memory or positive experience for 15 seconds, uh, consciously reflect on it for 15 seconds for it to leave the same imprint on us as a negative experience will with one second. Yeah. And, and so, you know, this is why people can lie in bed at the end of the day and they've had 200 lovely or at least neutral emails, but you're thinking about the one email mm -hmm. <laughs> that maybe wasn't so lovely. If, it's, if you play the numbers game, actually you've had many more moments of redemption of humanity today yeah. than, than damnation, but the mind doesn't, doesn't really play down that avenue. So understanding that we are like this, this is how the brain works, and that this comes from an evolutionary background, I think is interesting. Um, one thing that I did think as we were pre preparing for this conversation was how much as well uh, anxiety plays into this, by which I mean we saw with the COVID situation, the toilet paper thing is going to be looked back on oddly for years. We all had this idea that out there were the bad people who were going to the supermarket and hoarding the toilet paper, buying way more than they needed and storing it in the garage. And there'd be a few examples that the news would get of people who had done this, and it did happen occasionally. But on the whole, what I think seemed to happen a lot more was all of us would be going, oh, well, I didn't need toilet paper, but everyone else is hoarding it apparently, so if I don't buy the extra rolls now, then I'm going to run out. And this was actually what caused the shortage, was this assumption that the big bad existed out there, and now I have to overcompensate to, 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 to sort of fix it, to, yeah. to make up for it. The YouTube clips of the one person who was yes. beating off other people while throwing toilet roll into the trolley didn't help. Well, no, no. They, didn't, they didn't, no. But this is, I think this is the point, Sue, is that, that um, that's what we assume the normality is. That's the base level. And so as a result, whereas, you know, in reality, um, people have many more stories, I think, in COVID of someone offering to help out, a neighbour saying, can I yep. do anything for you yep. or whatever? And yet we had this idea that most humans mm. are the panic buyers who are yep. out there. Yep. And that actually, that belief makes us panic buyers. Yep. 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 So yep. it is funny, isn't it, how much we can anxiously mm. project out the big bad out there, mm. which ends up making us mm -hmm. play out that same narrative mm -hmm. that, we, that we think mm -hmm. is a problem. Yeah. And COVID's an interesting one too, the lockdowns, because I bet we could say to everyone here, reflect on what your experience was during that lockdown do you what do you remember you know do you remember people um who were connecting or helping their neighbors and things and, and an awful lot i certainly know from our parish community um just how much people were going out of their way um as much as they could you know to to reach out and to be there for one another and um but it's it's it will get lost in the winds of time and yeah. the youtube video of the woman throwing toilet paper upon toilet paper will remain yeah, it's an interesting point, isn't it? I, um, I've said this on the podcast before, but it struck me a few years ago how bizarre it was that humans only ever say that's life to bad things. So if you say to somebody, sorry, I'm late, traffic was awful, we respond, oh, that's life. Um, but if you say, oh, I fell in love, no one goes, that's life. You know, or if you say, hey, you're not going to believe it, but my, the parking thing malfunctioned, I got free parking today. Oh, that's life. You know, we have this inbuilt assumption that life itself is a, a bad thing. And so when things go wrong, it confirms that assumption. And when things don't go wrong, I mean, I remember recently um, someone was telling me about this wonderful thing that had happened in their life. And then they said the sentence afterwards, so now I know I'm just waiting. Yeah. <laughs> Something bad's yeah, going to happen, happen now. Yeah. Well, where do you think with this, this belief that life inherently is a bad, untrustworthy thing comes from? 
Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure, actually. I think there's some social mores and social habits that we have of, of kind of empathising with bad things that have happened and um, kind of saying you're not on your own a little bit, but it's kind of become this... It's, it's slid into a bit of cynicism of, oh, that's what, that's what it is, you know. But I do wonder if we go back... While you were saying that, I wasn't really listening to the question so much because I was thinking, <laughs> about, thinking about the fact that you say that's life, but, you know, there's another phrase. Why don't we appeal to their humanity? Mm-hmm. Isn't that an interesting thing that, you know, maybe if we go back a bit further in language, if we say we appeal to their humanity, we are assuming, we are appealing that hum- their it's humanity is good. a source of goodness. Yeah. So that's kind of a counterpoint to the it that's is. life. Mm. Yeah. And that's the sort of work that um, Steve Pinker uh, picks up in his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. He argues that we've actually got four good angels, which are empathy, self-control, uh, a moral sense and one other that's just gone f- straight out of my head but it was a really good one um, <laughs> and, and and we have six demons and the demons are things like dominance uh, sadism revenge and that the the four angels and the six demons are in conflict which I think is helpful in terms of reminding us that we are actually complex mm. beings but he, his argument is that uh, the better angels of our nature are slowly but surely winning. And he's done some extensive work looking at the incidence of violence. And the thing that um, uh, precipitated his work was that he looked at the news, and the news is always about um, theft, murder, um, domestic abuse, so on and so on. And he said, if you looked at, just took the news and wars, if you just took the news on face value, you'd think that humanity was getting worse. And then he looked at the incidence of violence and death um, from pre-feudal times up to the present and mm. could demonstrate quite clearly that fewer, there are actually less violence and fewer deaths now than there have ever been in history. And he argues that one of the reasons why we actually report on it is that we're so abhorred by it. Right. And so so at the moment, for instance, we have what looks like um, an epidemic of domestic abuse. If you apply Pinker's sort of lens to it, he would say, well, actually at least that much domestic abuse has been around for a long time, but because we're getting less and less tolerant of violence, we're actually, it, it is now coming to the surface and being named. Yeah, right. And because we actually are intolerant of it, we are actually trying to out it in as many ways as possible, even to the point now where we're not content with uh, outing physical violence, we're actually up to the stage now. We are so advanced, our, our, our better angels are winning to such an extent that we're even outing emotional and psychological violence. Mm. So stuff that 50 years ago we just took as part of the landscape, and like in the church, we would never have thought of, of ourselves in terms of being spiritual abusive or psychologically abusive. We would have thought that was just neutral territory. We would have... And, but now we're actually looking seriously at ourselves and looking for signs of abuse and violence everywhere. And so he, he argues that we are so intent on being peaceful and our better angels are actually in the process of winning hands down because we are essentially human. And that's, that's what he comes back to. Humans are essentially humane 
and that we actually want that part of our nature to win, and it is. Yeah, revokes um, MLK's quote about the moral arc of the universe being long but bending towards justice, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, it, it's interesting, and, and people listening might think, what is the link between this topic and Christmas? Why is this the Christmas conversation? Um, and I suppose there's a, a couple of reasons. One is obviously Christmas is the story of incarnation, of humanity itself being the dwelling place of the divine rather than some accident along the way. Um, and the other part about it is that Christmas does in our culture, for all that you will hear it bemoaned for its capitalistic nature these days and consumeristic nature and the busyness and all those sorts of things, Christmas, that it seems to me people can remember stories of parents who were never present, never loving, but then they can recall occasionally there was a Christmas day that they would do this for me. Or people who will have these memories of, of a life that seemed really hard and really difficult, but then they can remember the occasional Christmas where something kind of wonderful and lovely happened to them. So Christmas seems to almost be this North Star of the year that can bring us back to ourselves. And Sue, so there's a couple of stories that uh, Rudger Bregman, who we mentioned earlier, does share in his book about the power of Christmas on this. I was wondering if you'd be happy to share just a couple of those maybe. Yeah, I came across, that's why I bought some notes to make sure I reflected Bregman's work properly, but uh, I came across this story a little while ago in, um, you know, we're all aware of the, the 1914 crossing of the trenches um, between British and German troops. You know, and it didn't just happen in one place, it happened in multiple places. And, you know, they went across and they played cards. I think there was football in one, you know. Um, they exchanged gifts to one another and pictures of their families, you know, and and many of them, one German soldier had said if it had been down to us that day, there would never have been another shot fired in the war. But of course, unfortunately, the generals and those who were removed um, from the actual seeing one another and getting to know one another, um, degrees removed from relationship were able to say, no, you've got to keep on going over the top. And so, it, unfortunately, it was not those soldiers calling the shots. So, but we know that story. But this one is a, is a, a stunning story, I think. It was in 2009 in Colombia. There was this um, very bloodthirsty guerrilla war had been waged for 20 years. No, I'm sorry, more than 50 years. Um, 220,000 lives had been lost. And they'd tried really... Um, normal warfare tactics to try to defeat this, sending in the armies, you know, and it became obvious that just the usual brute force was not, you know, guerrilla warfare you know, tends to defeat armies. And so they decided, I think this is fascinating in itself, that the, the government decided to recruit an advertising agency for ideas. I think even that, you know, is an astonishingly creative move to start with. But anyway, they decided that in consultation with this advertising agency that they would ignore, instead of trying to appeal and change their views and the ideology of these young guerrilla fighters, they decided, again, they would appeal to their humanity and it was called Operation Christmas. And the first thing they did, and these are mainly young fighters who've run, gone, run away from their families, and they started, they put in um, motion sensor, sensor Christmas tree decorations in the forest where they were fighting. And so that as the soldiers would come close, these lights, these Christmas lights would come on and there was a banner that would suddenly light up that read, if Christmas can come to the jungle, you can come home, demobilise. At Christmas, everything is possible. Within a single month, hundreds of those guerrilla soldiers had returned home. 
And this was followed the next year, the next Christmas, by Operation Riverlight, because they worked out that many of, they'd missed many of the soldiers because the main route of transport was along, not, not through the forest, but down the rivers. And so they asked family members to handwrite messages to their sons, mainly, who were in, out there, and they put them in floating Christmas baubles that lit up and they dropped them down the river. And so, and the, the message that, amongst other things that the family wrote, what they had to write was, come home, we're waiting for you. And once again, um, they, they dropped 6,823 floating Christmas baubles. There we go, they know exactly how many. But as they lit up and twinkled and glided down the river, um, again, lots and lots of these fighters came back. Hundreds returned. And the following year, they called it Operation Bethlehem because they realised that many of the soldiers had tried to come home but they were young and they were lost and they couldn't find their way out of the jungle. And so they put in beacons so that they only dropped beacons to find their way back to the towns so it was like following a Christmas star. So they called it Operation Bethlehem. I think it's an astonishing story and I think if we're going to talk about the power of narrative, yeah. there's a way that the power of narrative teemed with the humanity of these young soldiers to change something with a war that just could have gone on either wars of ideology or just wars of brute force found another another way through. It's a remarkable story and, and it's interesting after reading Bregman's book I did some more research on it and there was a military general um, who basically said that they after reading the results of this left the army because they realized everything they had ever believed about warfare was wrong and basically their belief was the entire way the world is doing military action has missed the whole point because he's I think his quote was something like this is the without question just about most successful mm -hmm. military campaign in the last mm -hmm. hundred years mm -hmm. and it's the only one documented that appealed to the humanity of people rather than treating them as the enemy and let's squash them yeah. and it's so it's so interesting again it also reminds me of another story Bregman tells in the book which people might have heard before but I think this is in the UK they wanted to test um, how much the the belief that school students had about their academic ability impacted their academic ability and so they got a group of students about I think it was like something like a hundred um, middle year age students and they ran a big sort of standardized testing thing and then they split the class into two classes the class that was told they were the academically gifted class and the class that they told they were not the academically gifted class the catch was it was randomly assorted, they never looked at the results, but that's what they told the classes. And by the end of the following year, the academically gifted class had become the academically gifted class and the other class were struggling. There were students, it sounds a bit horrific when you think about some part of it. Well, I'm not sure they would have got that through an ethics no. committee. <laughs> Maybe not these days, no. But, but there were some students who were really struggling beforehand, but the moment they were told they were one of the mm. academically gifted students, and that was what was expected of them by the teachers as well who weren't aware mm. of what was happening, yeah. they lived up to that. And there were also students who were doing really well who were then put in the other class. And the moment less was expected yeah. of them, that's what they lived down to. Yep. So it's fascinating how we live up or down mm -hmm. to the narratives right. that we, we're, we're yeah. living by, isn't it? Which begs the question if we all believed that we were um, much more moral than we obviously think we are, what that, would yeah. that mean? You know, our moral expectations of one another, what does that mean yep. for society that they are so low? You know? Yeah. And, you, and, and that just feeds in your, your question was, so why, what does this say about Christmas? Just imagine the two different tracks that this 
that these two uh, trajectories offer us. One is Jesus, the crusader from outside, comes to rescue us. The other is that the incarnation affirms humanity. Yeah. So imagine Christmas as the great affirmation that humanity is so important, so special and so wonderful that God wants to be with us as one of us versus, oh my goodness, the whole place has gone to pot. I've got to go down and fix it. Yeah, yeah. Which is funny because I've never heard it said in that way before, but that's certainly what I heard growing up. That almost like there was a crisis meeting in this heavenly place. Yeah, absolutely. That's Trinity, exactly right. The, tr the Trinity, the Trinity have a big meeting upstairs and say, how are we going? <laughs> look what we've done. A, a yes. they say, look what we've done. Look what we've let loose. Yeah. How are we going to fix it? Short straws, rock, 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 scissors, and paper. <laughs> is it, you know, is Dad going to go? Is the Holy Ghost going to go? The son draws a short straw. <laughs> he gets sent on the rescue mission yeah. to fix it up. Yeah. And then our job then, as church, is to sell everybody the the story that not only has are we so bad that Jesus arriving didn't fix it. Mm. that you actually have to go through, you actually have to come to terms with your, your uh, essential evil, you have to buy into the project, and if you're lucky, if your faith is strong enough and all that sort of stuff, because people have all these worries because of the narrative, in the end, after you've finished in this life, which is sort of only a staging post, you will get the crown of glory later. Mm. So that trashes this existence no wonder we trash the planet because it's you know it's only a waste of time anyway and it's back to that manichae idea which you know, augustine was the person who brought that with him or are we going to say wow god is so enamored by this project that god has twinned god's self to it mm. which is the tehardian idea of that christogenesis and and cosmogenesis are one and and god and the world are so inseparable that our destinies are linked yeah and the other part of all of that of course we're talking about how we see ourselves and how we see god and, and god and the way we think god sees us mm. but it's also about the way we see one another sure. and if we buy into this this view that we're all rotten um that's what we're thinking. We're not just thinking ourselves. We're thinking that each other mm. is rotten and we're expecting that kind of um, grubbiness from each other all the time. And we live into it. If you're told that you are, if you are told that you are despicable, mm. then why not live the despicable life? Yeah. yeah. Like the, the children in the classroom. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Same deal. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting, I, I did this thing after reading Bregman's book, I, I'd forgotten about this until just now, but for a month I decided to tally every time somebody cut me off in traffic versus how many times people would let me in in traffic. That is such a dumb thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just, I can't deny it. But what was interesting is, because I had this unconscious belief that most drivers were awful, 
And most drivers were just impatient and wanted to get where they were going. But then when I looked at the data, I think it was like one to four. So four times as often as I'd get cut off badly in traffic, somebody would be unnecessarily kind to me in traffic. They'd go after you and they'd hold back so I could get in. And I thought, that's so interesting, the narrative that I've built, that I'm out here with all these selfish jerks on the road who just want to get ahead. And and actually what was happening was there was more kindness. And, and tied into something you said to me once, Sue, as well, which is most of us, and I realise this isn't everybody's example, but I think for most humans, we can recall significantly more examples of somebody being unnecessarily kind to us mm. than somebody being unnecessarily cruel to us. Mm. Um, and so I guess this all does tie back to, to that, that idea that we have of, um, uh, that we were talking about earlier of negativity bias. But I'm just, I'm intrigued by, um, by John Philip Newell's quote that we've mentioned on this podcast before about the idea that, that we're all inherently messed up or whatever, not being the good news. And John Philip Newell goes on to say, it's not good and it's not news. Not even news. It's not <laughs> even news. Most people go home every day feeling, you know, to some extent, yeah. like I'm a fraud, I'm an imposter, yeah. I'm broken, I'm not doing a good enough job in the world. Mm. And so this idea that the good news, which was meant to actually be what we're talking about here, that mm. that no, this is this thing is not just good, but holy and mm. sacred and the dwelling place yeah. of the sacred. Yeah. It's not it's not just bad, but it's incredible. But instead, the church has become the proclaimer of the the, the bad news mm. we already know. And what's really weird about this, if you think about it, we talk about having faith in God all the time. Yeah, yeah. And yet we don't, as church, often proclaim having faith in one another. And yet, what are we saying if we think like that? We're saying um, that somehow we need to trust God, but we all think, I think I'm rotten, I think everyone else is, is pretty grubby too, and yet I've got to trust God. But what if having faith in God does not preclude having faith in one another? And what if actually they're two sides of the one coin? Because God, the God who created us and put spirit, God's spirit in us and the, you know, the becoming the whole project Christian is becoming little Christs. You know, that also means that all of you are becoming little Christs, which means that having faith in you is just a normal part of what it means to be a Christian. So having faith in other humanity. And you know what? It also makes you more joyful. Yeah. The more that you have faith in one another, that joy just just bubbles up so much more and it's what we're talking about at Christmas too it's about the incarnation you know Christ being incarnated amongst us and and that's where the the dual faith in God faith in one another is is just it's just orthodox yeah it is orthodox isn't it I love that I I was reading a Richard Raw piece a few years ago and he said really I think it was Richard Raw, and he really beautifully said he's become disinterested in the problem of evil and he said most evil, most evil, not all, but can be explained by pain, trauma, wounding, things like that. He said, I'm much more intrigued in the problem of good because he said there's a lot of good that takes place that you can't find an exact reason why that person did something so kind or gracious or loving. Where did that come from? What was that about? And I think that's a, that's a really interesting idea that just changes um, uh, the whole approach. And it, it ties in, Sue, with um, something we were talking about before this conversation about actually what we mean by words like hope and faith generally. Because I think there are, we'll start with hope. There's probably two views of hope. And the first is the more common one. The first is that it's largely a cold, indifferent universe where things largely go wrong or at best randomly assault themselves. But maybe I'll get my fluke. Maybe for me, I'll get a fluke that will go against the actual nature of nature itself and I can keep hoping that I'll get my fluke. Whereas the other view of hope is that you can trust the very heart of reality, of life itself, 
regardless of what individual circumstances will come and go, the heart of the thing is good and is always working for good. It's such a, because often you do hear about hope and people essentially talk about it almost like you got a lottery ticket. Yeah. Yep. Like, I really, I hope this happens for me. I hope things turn around. I hope something good comes out of this. Um, and it's sort of set with a bit of anxiety in the same way someone might say, well, it's the 70 million Powerball, that would change yeah. everything, yeah. you know? Yeah, like, I'm looking for the exception. It's that fear of missing out yeah. that, that, is, that is lurking at the back of hope. And I know I may have said this on the podcast before, but I, you know, a certain interpretation of hope is the same as fear. Yeah. Um, they could be the same thing. Yeah. Um, it's actually fear that I won't get something I want, which is that first definition that you're describing. Fear that I won't get that, that that fluke won't happen. Yeah. But hope instead that actually is about what is at the heart of everything. I hope, and it's, and it's what I'd call defiant hope, that even if I start to see lots of evidence, whether it's on the news or even in front of me, that um, life is bad, I'm going to keep on hoping and believing um, that at the heart of everything is, is goodness and love, you know, mercy, peace, you know, that that is what is the real power of the universe. Now, I don't know if you've got any of the Narnia fans here. Um, I've, there's this gorgeous scene... Um, in the silver chair, I think, where, where the marsh wiggle um, is sort of under the influence of, um, of the, the, the witch who has you know, got this smoke going in the fire and she's saying, there is no Narnia, you know, there is no such thing as Aslan, you know, and it's all basically dog-eat-dog world and she's feeding and he's going, yeah, and then he suddenly he stamps on the fire and he says, I don't care, maybe there isn't a Narnia, but I'm going to choose to believe anyway is the essence of what, what the Marsh Wiggle says. And I think there is in that a much better definition of hope, that even if everything looks different, I, that hope is in not in an event happening, not in the fluke, but actually in the nature of being itself, in the nature of life itself, and in the nature of our connectedness, that, that, that love is the greatest power and love wins. Yeah, you know, it's, I was listening to recently a Rob Bell audio book where he spoke about, he described reality, he was talking about a particular tree that drops something like 10,000 more seeds than it needs to for every new tree to grow. And he said that seems to him to be the heart of reality is what he described as an abundance of attempts. Um, and I thought that was a really beautiful way to, to think about how reality actually works. And again, it, it changes our perception of faith. Faith isn't about believing in some external um, godly figure who maybe will save us from this burning mess, but having faith in the heart of reality itself. Because it's really about aligning your life then, isn't it? It's about yes, your yes. choice and you're free to do that. That's the beautiful thing about it, that, that hope is not depending on something ephemeral that may not happen. Hope is actually depending on you. You can align your life with what you believe the power of the universe is. You can align your life with love and forgiveness and mercy. And that's within your power. It's not waiting for some, some random moment of good fortune. It's just right there with you all the time. I am mindful as we move towards the end of this conversation that, that we may well have people listening to this um, who have had a very difficult year. Maybe they got screwed over in a work environment. Maybe their health has betrayed them. Maybe another person's betrayed them. Maybe they are just feeling like they've been hard done by in life. And, and it's quite possible that they've actually been on the end of what, what we might um, label as an evil act. And they might be listening to this kind of thinking, well, this is all well and good, but my life has been destroyed by what was done to me. So how do I have this hopeful 
lovely, you know, original goodness view of humanity when this is the, the rubble I find myself in. Peter, what would your, your response to that be? Um, yeah, that's a really good question and a really vital question because um, Chris, and it's one of the reasons why this podcast wasn't set up to be sort of full of uh, um, nice little fluffy bubbles because for a lot of people this time of year is really stark and you know, a lot of places offer blue Christmas services exactly for that reason and the power of those services as a model is that they illustrate how the story of Christmas is so powerful that it encompasses all of our lives. So the, the story of Christmas is not just the baby in the manger and everyone singing hallelujah, it's also the story of a family finding themselves threatened with the destruction of their child fleeing for fear to a foreign country. Um, it's a story of the marginalised, but it's also the story of the marginalised discovering that, um, that the universe actually does, um, that, that love is at the centre of the universe. So we, we actually have this incredible um, tension in the story and our lives have that tension in them. Uh, Pinker reminds us that our demons are doing battle with our angels. So it's not just that the four angels are winning and that the demons are not having a go. And sometimes in certain circumstances, the demons win momentarily. But in the midst of that, often people also discover uh, acts of incredible kindness. And that's, that's you know, in the concentration camps, there were incredible acts of kindness going on despite the despotic evil that was trying to destroy everybody. And some of it was people actually giving themselves in place of others. I mean, it was incredible. And so <clears throat> it speaks to us of that long arc that you mentioned before with Martin Luther King. And it, it behoves us all to actually look after each other so that people who have been screwed over by a friend actually discover someone else being kind to them, which is why we have to be incredibly vigilant for and with each other, because this isn't an individual project. This is a corporate project. And at various times in our lives, we will find ourselves as the person who's being kicked, and we'll also find ourselves as the one who has the choice, as Sue says, the choice to be the one who picks people up. Yeah. And so we've got to get over the individualistic project of I'm doing fine, that's really tough for you. If, if one, Because one of our angels, according to uh, Pinker, is empathy. So if that angel kicks in, uh, then people shouldn't be by themselves. And if they are, then our angels have, need a bit more of a tweak. But it really is about escaping the individualistic project. I, I agree with that 100%. I think it's the biggest piece. I would also say, and I'm just thinking about this, and um, this is a lovely quote from G.K. Chesterton. Um, and he says that Christmas is as if a man had found an inner room in the very heart of his own house, which he had never suspected and seen a light from within. And I think that's a lovely image for Christmas because it also speaks not only we're saying this is, yes, we have to get past the individual project because we are here together and that's the only way that this love can be made real. 
but it also Christmas, the hope of Christmas is also that there is within us that, that inner room maybe we hadn't suspected was there, that light within us because, that, because Christ has come, we have this hope that actually even in us, no matter what we've been told, no matter what terrible thing has been done to us um, or by us even, Mm. But whatever this year has been, if it has taken us to a, a, a really low place, there is, Christmas reminds us that there are parts of ourselves that we haven't yet encountered and there is within us a, a light that isn't just from us, that is also beyond us. And yeah. uh, I think in finding that, there's a level of defiance against the world um, for, you know, if, if you've, if there has been a terrible year for you, if, if terrible things have happened or just rough or abusive things or neglectful things, one response is to have a really defiant Christmas, is to say, no, I am going, there is that light within me that will never go out and that I choose to continue to choose life and love in every day despite whatever despicable thing has been done. So have a defiant Christmas Defiant Christmas is a... That's your best-selling book title, I reckon, Sue. <laughs> Actually, there's a Christmas carol in that, a Defiant Christmas. I could hear that. I, I am in, uh, reminded of the Christmas conversation we had last year, which people can go back and listen to, with Alexander John Shire um, and his work on the idea that uh, the, the Christmas story and how it lined up with the winter solstice, that the, the festival that the Celts were celebrating and why we decided to have it at this time of year, essentially was recognising that this human story, the story of nature that when we enter the deep darkness of winter itself, um, you know, or in our personal lives, that feels like the end, but the deep dark isn't where the world ends. The deep dark is where the world begins again. And, um, and Shia really beautifully in some of his recent work has been speaking about Christmas lights and candles at Christmas time, not as this thing there to overcome the dark, but as almost a decorating of the holy dark, um, this place of the womb time of God, of, of where new things are born and new life emerges. Um, of course, it doesn't feel like that in the moment. It just feels like death until the resurrection does occur. But um, that, I suppose, is a helpful thing as well for anybody who might be feeling like Christmas 2022 is just bleak and just difficult, is that, uh, that the Christmas story is in the least likely place when all hope seemed lost. That was precisely when the Christ chose to be born, you know, in that exact space. So that is, that's a, a, a helpful thing as well, I suppose. And I'm also, I'd, I'd like to... Uh, maybe end before I ask you guys a, a bit of a Christmas question as our clergy and what you preach on generally Christmas and what your sermon might be this year, a bit of a spoiler alert on that one. Um, but I I'm, I'm, want to make a comment about Christmas shopping because I have sat through, like probably most people in churches, so many sermons about, you know, uh, I can't stand Christmas anymore because of the consumeristic nature of Christmas and whatever. This is a common um, message, and I do understand it. It has become the season of um, consumerism, of capitalism. It's a very fair criticism in some ways. But I also look at it and go, even in the midst of this culture, which is so materialistic, which is totally consumed with what's the next thing for me and my life and my project, even in that culture... We still have this thing every year where for a couple of weeks the shops are full of people buying for others. 
And so I think, the, speaking of the defiant Christmas, the defiant power of this story is so strong that you can be in a Westfield and sure you're getting the narratives that you are what you buy and you are what you can afford and sure there's all the pressure, you know, it's not always a loving act, sometimes it's if I don't buy this, I'm going to be judged for it, I'm going to be kicked out of the family, whatever it might be. But at a core level, these temples to consumerism for 11 and a half months of the year are full of people buying for themselves. But then for a couple of weeks, people will brave those crowds and those car parks because they want to show the people they love that they love them in some new way. And so I, that's one of my favorite things about Christmas is that, that it's powerful enough even to get into this culture and, and to be transformative and powerful in that space. So that's, um, if you are Christmas shopping in the other weeks ahead, that's just something I'd say is, is look around you and um, see uh, the love everywhere you go um, as much as you're Re-narrate it is what yes. you're saying. Turn it into a positive story because it is and you're right. Yeah, I can't find a car park because they're full of people who wanted to love each other. Um, might be hard in the moment, <laughs> but just really tell yourself, be defined about it. You can make it work. Um, well, as we do wrap up, obviously Christmas and Easter do tend to be peak seasons for clergy. Um, you know, those are the times where there's a lot on, there's stuff outside of the usual parts of the role that you're doing. And the narratives you tell in your messages, your reflections at Christmas, um, are often maybe what more people hear than, than, um, than the rest of the year. So I'm curious, uh, when, you're, when you both come into preparing your Christmas messages, which I'm sure you're, you're well underway in the back of your mind, at least at the moment, if not the front of your mind, um, what, are the, what is the story, the, the Christmas message you often return to? I might start with you, Peter. Well, I'm glad you asked that question today and not yesterday because I actually did, I I had to write down the theme for my Christmas sermon today. So my Christmas sermon is called The uh, Inner Village Visits the Manger. Oh, okay. Any more on that or you have to come and you have to wait and see? Midnight Mass, come. There you go. Well, if that isn't a hook, I don't know what is. <laughs> That's, I'm intrigued. That's, is that, I've never heard sermon clickbait before. <laughs> but, but I think we're just a, some sermon clickbait. There we go. That sounds fascinating. What about you, Sue? Yeah, I think that's going to make my Indro crowd wander over after two services at Indro. They can still find their way to the Midnight Mass. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I um, have not written down my Christmas theme yet. One thing I will say, though, about Christmas is it's an incredible opportunity, um, often particularly at the early service. I look down and I think, I don't know who any of these people are. <laughs> and it's the most amazing feeling because we have this moment, this incredible um, permission that we're given at Christmas to tell the story of hope, this, this defiant hope story, um, to a, people that we have never met before and these happy smiling faces and we all sing songs together and it's just an amazing thing to find yourself in church at Christmas, I think, and share together. If we're going to encourage the humanity, it's a moment when I think we are being really very human together. Our hopes and dreams, even our expectations running away from from cooking and making sure that all the preparation's ready so we can get to Christmas, to the service on time and back in time to pick up auntie from the airport or whatever else is going on and yet we gather. And so I think something in that defiance of the things that are in the world that, that would lead us to be cynical, that would lead us to be 
just sad and even at worst despairing, there is that moment in Christmas that can uh, reveal in us and amongst us that hope that is nevertheless present because of our humanity, not in spite of our humanity, but because of it. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's so beautiful. Well, uh, that just uh, does just about wrap us up. And this is the last podcast of what I realized yesterday was the sixth year we've been doing the On The Way podcast. So, yeah, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. I think that's six. Um, I did drop maths in year 10. But, yes, yeah, so six years of doing the, the On The Way podcast. Oh, thank you very much for a bit of an applause. Oh, well... I wasn't fishing for an applause, but I'll always take one. Um, and good news, excitingly, we have the three of us just this week signed on to do six more years of the On The Way podcast. <laughs> so that's <laughs> thrilling news. Uh, but no, in all seriousness, um, we, uh, we continue to be so moved and so touched by people who do listen to this podcast, people in here tonight, people who do message us. Um, it is the reason that we keep doing it. I mean, we have joked before that if nobody listened, we'd probably keep doing it because <laughs> it's a hell of a lot of fun for us as well. But um, we have have some really exciting things planned for 2023 things we probably can't quite announce just yet but there's one potential person we're hoping might come to brisbane and we might do some live stuff with this person if it does happen so keep following the on the way podcast that news will either come soon or we'll just float into the distance and you'll wonder who was that person don was talking about if it doesn't come to fruition but thank you so much for your support um everybody who has listened to the podcast this year uh, we're very excited for all that does lie ahead and uh, we will see you in 2023 merry christmas